I'd like to say that I'm going to uplift you with something really light and cheery, but I'm not. I'm, going to I, I'm possibly going to take it darker. So I'm going to read to you from the, from the beginning of the many. A thin trail of smoke rises up from Perrin's, where no smoke has risen for ten years now. Ethan spots it close in, a few hundred yards from shore as he scans the houses, a regularity of grey spirals where there should be a break in the line. He turns to see if Daniel has seen it too, and shouts back at his wheelman to keep his eyes on the course until they've cleared the rocks and made land. He's as calm as he can be. He lowers his gaze and busies himself on the foredeck, kicking the empty creels and crates back into place and combing the nets laid highest for snags, waiting to feel the boat grounding through the soles of his boots. Clem is waiting for, as they approach, knee-deep in water that could be a lake for all it is moving, holding the winch cable. He moves aside and shouts up to them a greeting or a curse that is drowned in the engine noise as Daniel brings the boat in too fast onto the beach. Ethan takes a step forward and steadies himself against the gunwale, fires a final insult at Daniel and throws a line over to Clem. By the time it has fallen into Clem's hands, the winchman has secured it to the cable in a fluid motion and is climbing up out of the water towards the machinery. The boat's engine cuts out and the winch takes up the drone. Daniel doesn't wait for Clem to bring the ladder as the Great Hope pauses beyond the wave line or even for the boat to clear the water. He throws his bag onto the beach and jumps down before the winch takes up the slack. He walks up over the grey stones, bag slung across his back, and Ethan decides against calling him back to finish the job. There's little enough to do, and Daniel is right to want to be well away from him. From where he stands on deck, Ethan looks past his wheelman at the smoke still rising from Perrin's place. Perrin, who would wait at the window for first sight of the lights of the fleet, who would run down the beach and stare as the lights attached themselves to grey shapes and as the grey shapes became boats. Perrin, who coupled the boats to the winch, careful and slow, and as he did this, Ethan would look down over the gunnels to see the thick brown thatch of hair on the boy's head. Ethan's fingertips trace unconsciously the smooth crisscross of railroad scar lines on his right arm. Unnatural calm, Clem says, as Ethan climbs down the ladder. So Clem has not noticed the smoke at Perrin's. Clem's eyes are, as they should be, fixed on the horizon from the moment he arrives on the beach in the early morning, and he won't look back towards his home until he's relaunched the boats late on. Ethan takes up a guide pole and follows the Great Hope up to the flat, pushing it back on course as it grates its way across the stones. Ethan's is the first boat back, and the others will limp in throughout the morning. All holds empty, he's sure of that. There's been no talk from the small fleet above the radio static. No talk until a catch is made. It's a rule. Sure as not setting sail on a Friday is a rule. Sure as talking low when you spot a petrol close in is a rule. Sure as not moving into Perrin's is a rule. He would like to say that his father taught him the rules, but the truth is he learned them mostly by observing them as his father and the other men in the fleet went about their business. His memory of his father is of being told over and again that the seas will be empty before he's old enough to take the helm. And he remembers being told a story of a man who is cursed to fish an empty ocean for as long as he lives. The shore just in sight, but never any closer. In spite of the direction he points the boat, the winds and the tide conspire to push him further away from land. It's one of the few stories he can remember his father telling.
Aside from this oft-repeated prophecy, he recalls him mostly as a silence, sitting at the window until he cast off again, or poring over the arcana of his profession, charts marked with fishing grounds long past, charts that were scored heavy with notes, advice, warnings. When he was allowed out on shorter trips, on days the sea was, seas were calm, they were marked by his father's silence, on his insistence on silence. In the wake of his father's doom-heavy story and the absence of any elaboration, the young boy had been left to dream of a bloody exodus of the sea. In this dream, fish climbed one silver back over another out of the foam on stunted fins, limping and bleeding over the razored rock he limped and bled over himself, gathering mussels and kelp. He had dreamt of fish in numbers he had never seen and never would see, beached, panting and piled in deep drifts, staring glass-eyed over a carnage of a hall. It turned out his father was wrong. The seas were as full as ever. It was the number of edible things in it that had changed was all. There was still fish enough to catch back then. Few and far between and hard fought over, even by the crews in the cove. But when the boats came in, most times they carried up catches from their holds and there was a living to be made. There are pictures of them on the walls of the pub and in albums shut away in dresser drawers and in cupboards across the village. Grainy photographs of men sat on the sea walls, smiling, gutting gurnard, dogfish, conger, turbot, and laying them out in neat rows in ice-filled crates. Ethan has come across them as he searched for photographs of Perrin, though he has found none, and it is hard now to bring to mind his face. Four boats work out of the cove now dragged down the grey stones by Clem's rusting skeleton of a tractor and winched back up on their return. Four where there were fourteen, and the remains of the others corrode slowly, long since stripped of tackle and anything useful, and waiting to be dislodged one by one in the winter storms and reclaimed by the sea. Thank you. <laughs>